Please go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 9. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, again, we welcome you. Uh, We walk through books of the Bible verse by verse. And uh, so this is where we find ourselves this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And the title of my sermon is God Gives the Growth. And key words for our worshipers in training are plant, growth, and workers. And over the past several weeks, we've been looking at Paul's address to the Corinthians, specifically in regards to divisions that were happening in the church. Many of the Corinthian believers, after they had converted, after being radically transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, brought along with them many ideas that they had conformed to as natural men in the world. And eventually they began to try to meld together this this new understanding of their Christian faith with these ideas from the world and as a result began to see various divisions within the church. Primarily, Paul addressed divisions caused over various allegiances to different teachers. Some were saying that they were followers of Paul. Others, Apollos. Others, Cephas. And others believed they didn't need teachers at all. They were going to simply follow Christ. So instead of looking to God who does the sovereign work in the lives of His people and simply uses men as instruments in His hands, the Corinthians were looking to men and were following them in complete devotion. And last week at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw Paul exhorting the Corinthian believers who by now should have matured into their faith, but had not yet gotten beyond the elementary teachings and the application of their faith. They were babes in their faith. They were about puddle deep and one foot wide. This was in large part because they were conforming to the wisdom of the world and attempting to be wise in the eyes of the world as opposed to living in obedience to the Word of God, which is the wisdom of God. And so these worldly influences that had so grasped the Corinthian believers were pervasively undermining God's sovereignty in their individual lives and in the life of the church. They were putting man where God belongs. They failed to see God's sovereignty in all things. So now we see in verses 5 through 9, Paul is setting up the Corinthians to see God as He truly is, and to help them receive a right view of God's servants as nothing more than the men that they are. He is helping them to see man's position in relationship to God's position. Namely, that God is all-sovereign, all-glorious, all-satisfying, all-worthy, all-beautiful and lovely and gracious and praiseworthy, and that man is merely His servant. So Paul is setting the church up and is giving them the cure to the disease of division. He's calling them to recognize that we glorify one God and that He is our focus. 
He's saying, get your eyes back on God. Look to Christ as the author and finisher of our faith. Look to Jesus, not to man. The human instrument is irrelevant. So let's look. Verses 5 and 6. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Paul begins by asking the question, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Just previously in verse 4, he condemned those who were claiming to be followers of Paul and followers of Apollos as being merely human. Your ideas about following one leader over the other are nothing more than human ideals and preferences. They are meaningless. And as a result, you have taken your eyes off Jesus and you're simply following after man. So in light of this, he now asks in verse 5, if this is the case, then what is Paul and what is Apollos? And he answers this question there. He says, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So Paul has essentially equated Apollos and himself as being busboys. What are we? We're we're busboys. We're servants and we have a master and we're simply doing what we're told to do as any good servant does. They could not claim any personal credit because the Lord had assigned to each His task. Paul's making it clear that they are nothing. That they are to be given no reverence, no special treatment, no special honor, but simply to be seen those who are being faithful to the ways in which the Lord has gifted them for His glory and for His purposes. In verse 6, he says, I planted and Apollos watered. To the Corinthian church, Paul was the evangelist. He came, he proclaimed the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation. He did the work of evangelism. He planted the seed of the gospel. And then Apollos came on the scene after Paul, and discipled the believers. He taught them the Scriptures. He preached the Word. I'm certain he probably did weddings and funerals and pastoral counseling and visiting the sick. He watered the seed that Paul had planted. And he made sure that the the vultures wouldn't come in and snatch the seed out of the soil And that once the seed began to break through the ground and show signs of becoming a healthy, living plant, he nurtured and cared for it, making sure that it had enough water and that the weeds were pulled from around it and that the pests and animals stayed off of it so that it didn't get trampled. So Paul served as a great teacher and evangelist and Apollos as an eloquent preacher and a faithful pastor. And we see plainly in this verse that Paul readily admits the differences in ministry. But he objects when the Corinthians show preferences that result in division. He has incredible concern for the unity of the body and for clear thinking 
for a bond of love and fellowship to be found among the brethren. And this illustration that Paul's using, this agricultural illustration, was, was quite an illustration for Paul because not only has he a, a qualified himself and Apollos as being servants, but in an elitist Roman colony like Corinth, manual labors were absolutely despised. So not only has Paul given them the designation of servants, but they are tools used in the garden with very difficult tasks. In a way, he's pointing out the complete irony of the fact that there were Corinthians who were claiming allegiance to men and not to Jesus alone, in that Paul and Apollos were concerned only with the message of Christ and Him crucified, as we saw in chapter 2. Paul's only objective, he wrote, we saw a few weeks ago, was to see transformed lives as God brought them to faith in Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. This was Paul's aim. This was his focus. So what did the people do as a result? They decided, well, Paul's an alright preacher. And I came to faith under his teaching. So I'm a follower of Paul. Do you hear the irony? Paul is saying with everything in him, look to Jesus. And they're saying, we look to Paul. We look to Apollos. Yet it's it's very clear that when anyone faithfully preaches the Word of God so that He is pleased to bring individuals to faith in Christ, no one ought to extol the preacher who was merely doing his labor. Only Christ should receive the glory. Only Christ should receive the honor. It completely removes any grounds for comparison on our part. Our preferences for pastor number one over pastor number two are erased. You know, one of the things I'm I'm very thankful for in our day is technology that allows us to listen to sermons from some of the greatest preachers in the world. Some incredibly gifted men of God who, who mine complete gems from the Word of God that most Christians can't see. But as thankful as I am for it, I also see a great danger in it. We are prone to elevate these men to a place of high regard, to the point of idolizing them, creating a celebrity culture amongst them, and then comparing every other preacher that we hear in the world to them. And so this very same thing that was going on in the Corinthian church could very much happen to us on a much larger scale. The global church can be saying, I follow R.C. Sproul, or I follow Mark Driscoll, or I follow John MacArthur or John Piper. And then they compare their local church pastors to these men. And once you know it, the preference is for the man who is the creme de la creme when it comes to preachers. Of course. 
So we must be very careful unless we fall into this catastrophic temptation that is the cause of taking our eyes off of Christ and looking to mere men to be our functional saviors. Matthew Henry wrote, Men may neglect and vilify one minister while they cry up another and have no reason for either. They may condemn when they should commend and applaud when they should neglect and avoid. But the judgment of God is according to truth. He never rewards but upon just reason. And He never rewards in proportion to the diligence and faithfulness of His servants. You see, friends, rewards are not based on success, but labor. A lot of men labor very, very hard with very little success. Picking up verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So Paul is quick to, to point to the fact that God alone is sovereign in salvation and in the growth of the believer. He planted the seed. Apollos watered the seed. But they can plow. They can fertilize. They can plant. They can water. They can weed. They can cultivate and spray. And yet they cannot make the plants grow. Man is absolutely incapable of controlling the weather. He cannot make the sun to shine, the wind to blow, the rain to fall. Consequently, no matter the effort he puts into his labor, which is good and right and absolutely necessary, in the end, he is completely dependent on God for the harvest yield. This is why Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. And this should be deeply satisfying for all of us and incredibly life-giving if we don't just simply give lip service to it, but actually believe it and trust it and live it. This is where we tend to get the gospel wrong. And why many of us walk in Despair. We've misplaced our attribution of the work that has taken place within us. While most of us will readily admit that God saved us and that we did not save ourselves, nor did any mere man save us, because we understand this to be true from the Scriptures, we, we give lip service to that. But functionally... We attribute our salvation to our own work and to the faithfulness of others. We do this when we put the emphasis in our lives on our feelings rather than a deep and satisfying faith in Christ. Trusting in the promises of God, believing that He will do what He says He's going to do in His Word. Even when current circumstances don't appear to make that clear to us. This is what we do 99% of the time when we are faced with a child. Here we go. Hunker down. Either ignore the trial altogether or just hope it goes away. Or completely overreact. 
Let it control us because the circumstances are far too great for me to consider handling right now. Instead, we should be coming to God empty-handed, crying out, God, I am desperate for You. Help me believe Your Word. Help me to trust in Your sovereign goodness. Help me to have faith. Help me to worship. Help me to have greater affections for You than for comfort or for peace or for good health. Not my will, O Lord, but Yours be done. And then, and then it gets incredibly exciting and satisfying because we see the work of God giving the growth in our lives. The same God who saves us, grows us, and gives us strength and perseverance and great joy in Christ. So you see, it's complete folly to, wor- to look to workers and praise workers for the labor that they've done. For it is God who gives the growth. Verse 7, so neither he who planted nor he who waters is anything. But it is God who gives the growth. The sovereign grace of God makes those who plant and those who water out of nothing. Not so that they will be excited about the worth of their own status. But so that they will be excited about the worth of God's grace. It is God who is at work. It is God who saves. It is God who grows. Therefore, give honor to the gardener and not his tools. That's what we see here. God God is the gardener. The church is the garden. Paul's a rake. Apollos a shovel. And the people are walking into the garden... They're not admiring the beauty of the garden. They don't acknowledge the great work of the gardener. They simply begin to squabble and fight over which is better, the rake or the shovel. Then eventually they divide. The rakists and the shovelists. So instead of turning over soil and pulling weeds and planting seeds and tending to the fruit, these tools are busy squabbling over non-essential preferences. So let's take this out of the abstract and be very clear here. Instead of loving one another, dealing biblically with conflict, serving one another, discipling one another, teaching the Scriptures in their homes in word and deed, doing personal evangelism, creating ministry opportunities, serving and loving their neighbors, learning more of God and His Word, praying for the church, being hospitable, the older men pouring into younger men and the older women pouring into younger women, and on and on. Instead of these God-exalting, gospel-centered living things that could and should be going on in the church, they're busy squabbling about their preferences, their musical preferences, who they want to have preach, what programs they will and will not allow to go on in their buildings, what color their carpet is, who gets asked to cut the grass, Who left the light on in the bathroom? 
So you have a bunch of rakes and shovels not doing what rakes and shovels do. Why? In large part, because it's hard work. It's dirty work. And when you're being plunged into the dirt, it's really hard to see at that point in time what the beautiful end result will be because the greater concern is on the current circumstances, not the final outcome. Look, who cares if your preference is for a rake over a shovel? How does the garden look? Is it fruitful? Is it multiplying? Is it beautiful? Does anyone want to take it in and enjoy it? Does it make Jesus to look great and glorious as He is? That's what counts. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So don't stop the labor to honor the fellow laborer. God is the reward giver for good works. Paul and Apollos, though very different men, were not at odds with one another. They did different tasks in different ways, but their focus was one and the same. And the beautiful thing that Paul represents here is the fact that the best qualified and the most faithful laborers have a just sense of their own insufficiency and are very desirous that God should have all the glory for their success. Paul and Apollos are nothing at all in their own account. But God is all in all. Nick and Steve and Russ are nothing. But God is all in all. And there are a lot of weeds in the garden. And we don't have time to fight over whether or not we're going to use a shovel or a rake to prepare the soil. We must be busy about the work of the Master. Evangelizing. Planting gospel seeds that the Lord will use for His glory. Bible teachers must be watering those seeds. Doing discipleship and leading others in the faith. Meeting with new believers. Encouraging older believers. And challenging both with the Scriptures and the faithfulness of their walk in Christ. The servants and encouragers need to be showing hospitality and love and nurture to their neighbors, proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed, in grace and in truth. And then when all of this is working together, as you're working in the garden, you get the blessed joy of watching it grow and bear fruit. And from it all, in the long haul, you see the fruit of your work. You see new pastors and deacons and missionaries and faithful husbands and fathers who love their wives and lead their families by discipling and disciplining according to the Scriptures. You see submissive wives and loving mothers who cherish their husbands and orient their lives toward the home to make much of Christ in their labors. We see Bible teachers, Sunday school teachers, and on and on and on. 
But we see this only when we are willing to have the attitude of Paul and say, I'm just a busboy for Jesus. The garden will grow and flourish and the fruit will be sweet. And this is another area where we tend to to get the gospel wrong a lot of times. It's not an attitude of, what about me? What about my growth and my sanctification and my family and my preferences? This is the maturity that the Corinthians lack, namely understanding that it's not about you. First and foremost, it's about Jesus. And it's about being a good shovel and getting dirty and doing the hard work that brings about fruit. Good shovels dig deep and hold a lot of dirt. How deep are you digging? How much dirt are you holding? The goal should be maturity. And one way to be able to measure maturity is is to examine how much greater our concern for loving Jesus and loving our neighbors is than asking, what about me? Considering how much we love Jesus and love our neighbors instead of asking preference questions. So here's, here's a test for all of us. What's, what's our first inclination? What's the first thing that pops into our minds when something changes that we're not so excited about? Is it, I need to make known the fact that I'm not happy about this. And I'm going to call three other people and see how unhappy they are about it so that we can form a coalition of unhappiness and make sure our voices are heard. Or is it, well, I don't necessarily like what it is, but what's the purpose behind it? Will it be more God-honoring? Will it challenge God's people to be more faithful? Will it advance the kingdom of God and the mission of the church? How we respond to situations when our preferences are not being met is a huge determining factor in our level of spiritual maturity. Now listen, remember, I'm talking about non-essential preferences, not Trinitarian God, not virgin birth kind of stuff. If we start denying the virgin birth, I hope that everyone will make a big scene and call out the atrocious heirs of such a ridiculous claim. But we're talking about preferences here. We're talking about non-essentials. And when we address these issues of non-essential preferences, how we respond to them is a huge determining factor in our level of spiritual maturity. And I hope we will all consider this deeply this week. It has absolutely killed me in a lot of ways as I've thought about it. And done some searching in my heart at preparing for this morning. I've got a lot of work to do. And I pray that God will do that work in me as He does in you. 
And now I'm not going to dig into what Paul is saying here in verse 8 regarding each receiving the wages according to his labor, because this will be addressed later in 1 Corinthians. So we'll save it for a few weeks down the road. But let's look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In other words, Apollos and I are working together for God, for you. We are busboys for Jesus. Jesus gave himself for us. We are giving ourselves to you. Now you give yourselves to the city of Corinth. So how do we get there? How do we get to a place where we see ourselves as fellow workers with God for the sake of others? A place of spiritual maturity that sees the gospel as others-oriented and dependent upon Christ, not dependent upon ourselves and not oriented primarily at ourselves. How do we get there? Three things. First, be a Christian. And this may seem obvious, but I'd be remiss should I not mention it. Hopefully, it's clear by now that this is all about Jesus. If not, I failed miserably. If you're not a Christian, I'm calling you to be obedient to the God who created you in His image, who commands you to repent of your sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ the truth that you, like I once was, are dead in your transgressions and sins. That you have fallen short of God's glory and that all of life for you is currently consumed by belittling God and making much of yourself and not Him. And yet God who is gracious and merciful and kind in His great love for His people sent His Son Jesus to be born of a virgin to live a perfect and sinless life, to die on a cross to receive the full penalty and wrath of God on behalf of His people, that His righteousness would become our righteousness. And now He sits in heaven, ruling and reigning forever and ever throughout all eternity. For your joy, that God may be glorified, I plead with you to turn from your sin and cling to Christ who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Cry out to Him that He would give you life so that at the name of Jesus, your knee would bow willingly and your tongue confess with deep and glorious satisfaction that Jesus Christ is Lord. Secondly, belong to a church. If we want to achieve spiritual maturity, we must realize that there are far too many weeds to work in the garden on our own. We can't do it. And God didn't design it that way. You simply cannot make the claim that you are a Christian and yet simultaneously have nothing to do with God's people in the church. This is the bride of Christ. And God did not design us to go it alone. 
He did not design us to walk through the Christian life in isolation. Nor does He give us this option in His Word. If we want to obtain spiritual maturity, if we want to be God's fellow workers, we can only do it in the context of the local church. And look, if you're a visitor with us this morning, I'm not in any way telling you that you need to join our corner of the garden necessarily. We know we're not perfect here, but we also know that you're not. So we're a pretty good match in that regard. But if you are able to find another place that preaches the Bible, that talks about our sin nature, that proclaims Jesus as the answer and makes much of God, then plug in. Get involved and give your life to being a part of the work and the community of that place. The centermost institution of your life ought not be your job or your sports teams or your hobbies or your favorite stores or even the movie theater. The centermost institution in your life must be the two institutions created by God for our good and His glory, namely our families and the church. Love and serve your family and belong to a church and serve the bride and grow. And third, if our goal is spiritual maturity, we must utilize resources and we must get creative. If we desire to be God's fellow workers, we must utilize the resources that God provides to that end. And so right now you may be thinking, I don't, I don't have a place to serve. Well, if, if that's the case, talk to, talk to one of your pastors or deacons and we'll, we'll set it up for you. But don't be surprised if we say, have you considered calling and encouraging so-and-so? Or have you thought about taking another younger woman or younger man out to lunch and establishing a, a weekly routine with them where you meet together and, and, and do Bible study and check in on each other and see how you're doing? Or you see, you see that guy over there? He's been visiting us for, for three weeks now and he needs someone to help him look for a job and put together a decent resume. Those are, those are ministry opportunities right there in the church. It's, it's, not, it's not a program. It's not something that you go and you're a member of a certain team that does that work in the church. It's God's people doing what God calls us to do for His glory. That the church would be serving one another and loving her neighbors. Not because we prompt you to do it, but because you see the need and want to fill it. Or you may be thinking right now, well, I'm not very useful right now because I have an addiction that just won't go away. And so I, I, I can't serve others. I've got this problem. Okay, well, then I say to you next time, or I say to you, this, this is the time that you look at your service and next time that comes up, you sit down with one of your pastors and receive biblical counseling. We love to see the work of God in the lives of His people through biblical counseling. So don't let your addiction stop you from serving. Get help. It's here for you. 
Or you might, you might say, I don't really feel comfortable around a lot of people and I don't really have any Christian friends. Well, then we'll get you plugged into a small group where you can grow closer to a smaller group of people and serve right alongside them as they partner for one another, worshiping together, holding one another accountable and seeking to live the gospel together arm in arm. Okay, so I, I think you see where I'm going. There are absolutely no reasons at all why you should not be serving. The, the resources are available. And if they're not, we need to use our God-given creativity to create ministry opportunities. And you are essential to this because it's not about one person putting it all together and dishing it up for everyone else. It's about everyone working and striving together to be God's fellow workers. Kingdom growth happens when Jesus transforms a person and that person plants seeds and waters that seed and lives out the Christian life in front of others. And so Christian faith is life on life. It's communal. It's together. Is that hard work? Yes. It's very hard work. Does it all take time and effort? Yes, it does a lot. But if we want to see some fruit in our corner of the garden, we need to break up division between the shovelists and the rakists and admit that every one of us is simply just a tool in the hands of Jesus. And He gives the growth when we are faithful and obedient in our pursuit of Him. You know what I think is the main reason shovelists and rakists exist? Two things, worldliness and boredom. Yeah, just just like the Corinthians. Our default is to call on the wisdom of the world to help us determine what's right for the church and what's necessary for satisfaction in our lives. make a game out of finding faults and pointing them out, but never offering solutions or assistance. Some of you guys can tell me what type of bait to use to catch a bass on any body of water in Georgia any day of the year. And how many races Jeff Gordon barely tweaked by Dale Earnhardt Jr. in the last lap to win. But you can't recall the last time that you sat down with someone to share the gospel and talk about Jesus. Or the last time you prayed with your family and led your family in worship. Look, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that fishing is bad or that being good at it and knowing a lot about it is a bad thing. That's great. I like fishing. I'm just not any good at it. And I'm not saying that car racing is a bad thing either. I don't get it at all. And I don't know if my little illustration about Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt is realistic. And the only reason I know they're race car drivers is because I've seen stickers in the back windows of big diesel pickup trucks. But I'm not saying that these are bad things. To be interested in and to learn about. 
There are a lot of things that I try to learn and know a lot about. But we've got to keep our priorities straight. When these things take over our kingdom focus, our kingdom work, we've sunken into worldliness. And we're going to get bored with the church and we'll begin to divide. Don't do it. Don't let it happen. Examine your heart. Examine your life. And even though it may be painful to dig out of that hole, it may be painful to separate yourselves from the things of the world that you love so much. Trust in God who gives the growth. And you will experience a joy and a satisfaction beyond any other that this world and this life has to offer. Find your satisfaction, find your joy, find your hope in Jesus and in Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You that You have given us Jesus to be satisfied in. That You've given us Jesus to fill our greatest longing, our greatest need for worship. That you have granted us the joy of knowing him and walking by faith that you grant and perfect within us. I pray, Father, that you help us to be faithful servants. That we see ourselves as nothing and we see Jesus as all in all. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful workers of the gospel, tending to the garden as tools in the hands of Jesus. Help us to flee division. Help us to flee worldliness that drives us to boredom with the church. Help us to love the bride of Christ and to give our lives to the bride of Christ that the kingdom would be advanced, that Christ would be exalted, and that we could love you and love our neighbors the way that you call us to. Give us deep and abiding joy and satisfaction in Christ and in him alone. In his name we pray. Amen.